Hi, Tom. Can you first introduce yourself to the listeners and tell them a little bit about what your company does? Sure. My name is Tom Cornelius. I'm the co-founder and uh, one of the contributors for the Secure Controls Framework. The SCF is an initiative that is open source where we provide cybersecurity and privacy controls at no cost uh, via the uh, Creative Commons licensing so that companies can have a Rosetta Stone approach to controls so that IT, cyber, privacy, and other teams can all speak the same language of controls, both within their company and also intercompany. So what one control means to one company can mean the same thing to multiple different companies. Okay, perfect. Thank you. So before we get further into, I guess, the interview a bit about yourself is it's always interesting to hear like what you do outside of work. So you can tell your listeners a little bit of like what you're into outside of work. Sure. It's kind of nice to unplug from the cyber world. I, I just go old school and I do bladesmithing and blacksmithing. So making just a, either you know metal artwork or knives or axes, those type of things. It's, a, it's really a lot of fun. Okay. So as you said before, can you tell us a little about what your role is now? An overview of how you got into your current role and any other companies you've worked for that our listeners may find interesting. Sure. So um, I've been doing documentation really since about 2005, and it started out as really a side hustle where up until uh, you get into the early 2010s, you know, when you start having, you know, Sony, TJ Maxx, Home Depot, the different you know, incidents that happened there, a lot of organizations really honestly didn't care that much about documentation or the whole governance, risk and compliance, GRC side of things as a whole. When that started changing, what I found is companies started, you know, taking the interest to invest in documentation, you know, policy standards, procedures, just uh, conceptual, like how do we actually do things like vulnerability management, risk management, so on and so forth. One thing we noticed in about the 2016 timeframe is when GDPR was on the horizon, that's when we had companies that were coming to us and saying, hey, uh, we can't just do ISO, we can't just do NIST. You know, what do you have that can essentially be a multi-framework approach? So what we ended up doing was we developed a product, the digital security program that was very well received, but then we had the same customers coming back to us saying, hey, this is great, but what do I do with the rest of my environment that is, you know, unmanaged? We have an island of PCI, island of SOX, you know, say island of HIPAA, but the rest of the environment is completely unmanaged. So that's when uh, I got with a bunch of peers in the industry and uh, we developed the secure controls framework as its own you know, open source project. And that was launched in 2018, where it started off mapping to a few dozen different laws, regulations, and frameworks. And now it's up over, I believe, over 110 laws, regulations, and frameworks uh, you know, on a global scale. And so I'm kind of architect and contributor on that, just kind of herding cats uh, with di- different initiatives that we have. We've uh, you know done a couple side projects where we have the security and privacy capability maturity model, the security and privacy risk management model. We've done a privacy management principles because one of the interesting things we found was that say nine out of ten times on different calls you would find that a company they would know what they would want to align with you know NIST CSF ISO or you know, NIST 853 you know type things, but when you ask what type of privacy framework they wanted to align with, usually it was the inverse of maybe one out of 10. And even out of that, most of those companies were saying, oh, well, we're just going to do the SOC 2 privacy principles. You know, so when you look at from a CCPA perspective or GDPR perspective, you know, that's really not sufficient. So we created a, again, almost a, another, you know, Rosetta Stone approach that allows a company to look at the top dozen or so different privacy frameworks and normalize those into a way that they could, you know, address 
ISO, OMB, GDPR, CCPA that also are tied back to the SCF. So you get this, uh, you know, this really kind of elegant solution of cybersecurity and privacy controls all linking together to make something that's, you know, that's viable. And that's the end of the day. We want something that works. You know, having something that is pretty but doesn't work uh, doesn't help anyone. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. We use it natively in our platform. I know we work together on this, but like I say, it's a really, I mean, I can't believe I didn't know about it before. It's like one of the best kept secrets out there. It's like the amount of time for years of like spending as a consultant, like bringing these frameworks together, doing this on engagement after engagement. And there was a, there were paid things you could do to do it. But I mean, yep. like knowing it was completely free is, like I say, it was, it's been changed. It's been very much changed our customers and impacted them. But like I say, I think it just needs to be out there. More people need to know more about this framework because it is, it's brilliant. It's not perfect, but it's a really great start of a 10. You bring up a good point. It's not perfect. And one of the things is like, so we don't create our own stuff. You know, there's a lot of things like if you look at, you know, what are things that can be done for ransomware? We just don't make up stuff just out of thin air. We wait for a law regulation or framework to say, you know, this is the proper way that you, you know, that you address that just so it's defendable based on, you know, quote unquote, best practices. You know, and that's where, you know, we try and do about a quarterly update because new things come out from NIST, um, you know, quite often, you know, such as like, you know, uh, cybersecurity uh, supply chain risk management with uh, NIST 800-161 Rev1. That's going to be huge. We're going to release a new update that's going to have uh, that information at this quarter. But we just need to evolve it and try and make it better because as things come out, such as uh, PCI version 4 or, you know, cybersecurity SCRM, that gives us a way to also refine some of the controls as well to make them, you know, just to keep making them better. And one of the things we do is say, unlike a PCI where they renumber stuff all the time, if something is going to be deprecated, uh, we just literally kill it off like NIST does. And we'll basically say that this is, you know, deprecated and rolled into another control. So it makes it easy that if you're going to, you know, if you're going to use the SCF, you don't have to worry about the next version renumbering or making something new. So what we've kind of found over the last over four years now, the same 32 domains are still applicable because we get people that you know ask us you know quite often is like well you know what about blockchain or stuff like that you don't technically need another domain for blockchain when you actually you know dissect blockchain into what it is you know key management cryptography everything along those lines that already exists from a control level so it's withstood a lot of public uh, debate and you know again but we're always looking for ways to improve it so we're always getting feedback from people from around the world it's, it's really pretty cool yeah, I mean, like I say, it is amazing. I know you've talked a lot about kind of SCF and some of the way obviously you do with Compliance Forge, but obviously you are a security professional. Where did you learn your trade? How did you get into this space? I was always a geek. So it was kind of funny where I graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point and I went aviation. So I had a minor computer science there, but I was always the geek in the unit when it came to either setting up the first networks in the late 90s or doing other things along those lines. So when the opportunity came out to be a information system security officer, no one else wanted to touch that with a 10-foot pole. But I was like, hey, that sounds cool. I'll do that, which was really kind of neat. But then I got sent to basically hacking boot camp you know, from the Army. And that really turned it on to this is super cool. And actually, it was kind of the reverse top gun. I went from being a pilot to a geek. 
you know, where it was just like, I happily, you know, walked away from the aviation side and went into the cybersecurity side because I thought it was just, you know, really intellectually challenging and, you know, just, it was a lot of fun. But I did uh, defense contract work. I worked for large uh, Fortune 500s. And then I just found that it was just, there's a need for documentation. Essentially, it's a niche within a niche. And uh, that's where Compliance Forge really exists. We've got Fortune 100 clients, you know, foreign governments, you know, all the way down to small mom and pops. And uh, you know, so that works hand in hand with the uh, Secure Controls framework with some of the development work, um, you know, different initiatives for education and training. You know, big things. One of the cool things we're working on right now, and it's been over a year because it's kind of like uh, doing a text two-step, you know, two steps forward, one step back, you know, based on different ways to do it. But it's creating assessment objectives for every SCF control where similar to NIST 853 Alpha or 171 Alpha or 172 Alpha, where you have uh, specific criteria. What we've been working on is making that assessment objectives for every SCF control so that third-party auditors can use the SCF as a way to uh, perform conformity assessments. And later this year, we're hoping to actually finalize and launch the SCF conformity assessment program, the SCF CAP. And that's going to be really pretty cool because companies will be able to do first-party declarations as well as uh, third-party audits to be able to show off of this meta framework as they're you know picking the you know the concept is defining what right looks like. So if you have you know certain laws, regulations, and frameworks you have to uh, comply with, those define your must-haves, your minimum compliance criteria. But then your average you know CISO or you know security team is going to say, well, that's really cool, but compliance doesn't make us secure. So there's going to be other things, you know, these are discretionary security requirements or DSR that could be a FIM, it could be DLP, it could be, you name the different type of technology or other control, but the type of stuff that adds security onto compliance. So you add this minimum compliance criteria with discretionary security requirements, and that really establishes your baseline, you know, of what right looks like for your organization. You know, we're calling it the minimum security requirements, the MSR. That MSR is going to be like a snowflake where it's unique to every company. And that's where the SCF conformity assessment program will be able to use these assessment objectives to perform an assessment based off of, you know, off of those specific controls. And the idea is, you know, to come up with a a determination on risk, you know, does the evidence conform or is there a significant deficiency or is it even there a material weakness in the overall security and privacy program? So from a CISO's perspective, this can be immensely valuable for telling that story to management of like, hey, you know, you think it's really good, but, you know, this is broken for these different reasons. Or at the same time, it can it can validate, you know, the good hard work that a security team has, has performed. Fantastic. So I know we've spoke about kind of your role and we don't really spoke about kind of the size of company. You kind of loosely mentioned, but like, how big is Compliance Forge? I guess also how big is this core control framework? How many contributors have you got around the world? And really, like, what are the organizations you work with? I know you said there's a wide spectrum, but is there some kind of a common organization that you see a lot who engage with you? So uh, Compliance Forge itself, small company, privately held. The SCF uh, made up of uh, a few dozen different contributors, mainly U.S.-based, uh, some overseas. Where the client base uh, is kind of shared between the two. Again, we've got from micro smalls on some of our products to 
you know, Fortune 100s and, you know, major military commands, foreign governments, you know, that type of stuff. Really for the SCF, though, where we've kind of found is it's generally medium to enterprise environments to use the SCF, purely because when you have your smaller companies, maybe you find, might find an IT guy, you know, you get above, you know, 50, 100 people, maybe there's a single hat security person. So usually that's kind of more, they're in the realm of putting out fires versus really trying to get a handle on proactive management. And the SCF is really focused on proactive management. If all you're doing is just worried about, I just have to show what I'm doing for CMMC or just doing, you know, for PCI, use an Excel spreadsheet, you know, just, you know, make your life easy and just do that. But when you're juggling multiple different laws, regulations, and frameworks, like you've got to do ISO 27001, you're doing you know, CMMC, you're doing GDPR, CCPA, that then becomes a nightmare. And that's where the SCF can really you know, help identify, you know, normalize those type of controls. It can also help prioritize you know, what's really important, you know, what's not important. It can give maturity level criteria to help define what right looks like, both from a budgeting perspective. So if you know, guidance to a CISO is, you know, we want this to be standardized across the enterprise. The SCF controls can help, you know, provide at least a little bit of guidance of what that might look like from a people processes and, and tools perspective, as well as uh, uh, project managers. So if they're given, you know, these requirements, they can kind of see, okay, this is what I've got to have to be able to pass, you know, this control. So it's helping give the answers to the test early on to, you know, project managers. So you throw kind of everything together, and that's really where it's more of an enterprise down to you know medium companies. And one thing that we're finding is a lot of times, you know, you've got security people that are job hopping every, you know, say one to three years. So we're getting companies that are on their second, you know, third iteration of you know, one person's use it, they're taken to another company, another company. We don't spend a single penny on advertising. It's all grassroots, it's all word of mouth, which really helps to go show that you know it works. I mean, if it didn't work, we wouldn't have that many companies out there using it, as well as GRC solutions like yours that are that are embedding it within their, their tooling. Yeah, I mean, like for us, it's a huge differentiator to have access to such a comprehensive control library that covers so many of, I guess, the universal requirements that everyone wants to do. Plus, for our US and UK customers, I mean, the things they have to do as well. Like, I mean, it is fairly comprehensive. And like I say, you like you said, the maturity guidance, I think you've undersold that there of like yeah. somebody giving you that level of maturity guidance on a control by control basis. You pay a consulting firm a lot of money to do that normally. Oh, yeah. And there's the kind of the moments too that some companies have a kind of holy crap moment. Like, I've got to do all of this. It's like, well, yeah, but that's, don't blame us. That's what you signed your contracts for. You know, you said you're going to do NIST 853 moderate, or you're going to do this and this and this. One of the things that I take a little bit of like a personal pleasure in is that that enlightenment moment when people kind of realize I can't just say these are the top 50 controls we're going to do. <laughs> because right there, you're able to say these are your must-haves. Say so you have 230 must-have requirements. You know, you can't lie to the board. You can't lie to other people and say, no, 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 those we can kind of ignore. You know, these are the ones that actually matter. And that's where on some of the educational material we kind of bring up. And it really does help a lot of the CISOs that we work with of saying, hey, it's okay to have, let's say you've got a couple hundred requirements and you can't just do it this year. You know, this is where, you know, you got to put the big boy pants on or big girl pants on and be able to say, look, we're going to come up with a multi-year roadmap. You know, we're going to do these 
50 controls this year, you know, these controls next year and these controls next year to be able to have a prioritized, a, a basically a risk prioritized approach to be able to get to what the company is obligated to do. But at the same time, it's being able to honestly look at someone and say, look, we're not negligent. We understand this is what we can do. This is what we can't do. Here are the compensating controls we're putting in place. And we are managing it based off of the priority of the risk that we, you know, that we have. And that's where, you know, tools such as, you know, as, you know, yours are great because you can help manage those tools, you know, tell the, you know, manage those controls, tell the story and, you know, show how risk is actually being managed. And that's something that really you can't do very well off of Excel. If you're just doing PCI off of Excel or CMMC off of Excel, it's hard to really kind of tell more of a holistic picture because one company or one team may say, well, we only have to worry about these 50. And these other ones are saying, well, we've got 110. Instead of more of a, a ringleader saying, you know, okay, look, we have to do all of this across the company. Yes, there's a couple high controls we've got to do in these security enclaves, but it's managing it what makes sense uh, to minimize risk across the organization. And that, that's what I think is cool. That's what I like doing. Yeah, I mean, it is fantastic. I know we spoke before, you kind of, you're always saying the challenges were helping smart people really tackle and untangle like you know, compliance and security requirements. So, what would you say if you're, CISO or someone right now, you've got, you're trying to address this, you've got many compliance requirements. What are the steps to get going? How would you start to tackle this problem? First, I say make a pot of coffee instead of just trying to answer this off. We actually wrote the integrated controls model, uh, the ICM. So, and that's available off of either Compliance Forge or the, or the SCF. And it's eight different steps to go from, you know, essentially, how do you actually do GRC? And, you know, maybe after this video, you can include the link to it, but it's a thoughtful approach of, you know, how do you establish context? You know, again, identify your must-haves and nice-to-haves, you know, assign ownership, you know, have the documentation that supports it, you know, then be able to essentially manage how the controls are being implemented. And then the, really at the end, I mean, that's when you start getting into risk management and metrics and, you know, kind of it's, it's the plan, do, check, act approach. And that's how we've actually overlaid you know, with these eight different principles is that so it's it constantly is working on improving itself. So, yeah, we'll include that link for your uh, viewers. And the other thing is, like, where do people get it wrong? I mean, we're talking about lots of people taking these steps, getting it right. Where do you see people get it wrong and, and what can they be doing to kind of get better? It's assumptions. Assumptions are where people get things wrong. And the reason for that is it's going from the, you know, the firefighter mentality of, I've just got to do this. And they start going down one path, say, just to do CMMC. And they completely forget that they've got PCI, they've got HIPAA, they've got, you know, privacy requirements. And so they spend all their time going down one path. And then when they realize they've got more to do, they've got to re-architect it, redo work, maybe redo technology, um, you know, different segmentation. So if they took a step back, made that pot of coffee, you know, and just went around and talked to people, you know, again, you do it on Zoom or in person, depending on your environment, but go talk to legal, go talk to procurement, go talk to facilities and ask those questions of like, so what contracts do we have? You know, do we have any contracts that have privacy requirements or cybersecurity requirements or, you know, other obligations that have cybersecurity and privacy implications? And it's coming up with that list that really define the must-haves. And if you don't have that defined list of must-haves, you're going to go down the wrong path. And, you know, the discretionary stuff is, again, it's discretionary. You can kind of say, you know, I would like to have this. If not, maybe it's not going to hurt stuff. 
but you're able to kind of, you know, pass those decisions, you know, up to the, you know, pass the buck up the food chain, you know, let them accept the, the risk if they don't want to fund it. But if you go down the wrong path, that's with uh, poor assumptions, you know, that's where smart people tend to kind of, uh, you know, wind up in troubles. And then they just update the resume and jump to another company and leave the mess for someone else. We've seen it so many times where companies focus on one requirement, go so deep on it and design the framework entirely on that. And then like, oh, but we have to do, like you say, PCI, then we have to do NIST, CMMC, and then they end up having to do separate (laughs) compliance programs or... This is a problem. I mean, it's some of it's being a bad CISO. You know, some of it is bad management of the CISO. Uh, you know, it could be the CIO, it could be the COO, you know, whoever the, the CISO is is reporting to. But it really kind of comes down to if that CISO doesn't have a business plan, that kind of shows that that CISO really doesn't deserve that title. You know, they're just, you know, they've got a laundry list of stuff they want to buy, but they're actually not working towards a plan. I've seen it where you've got you know, CISOs that, you know, have a lot of money, they got to spend it, they buy a bunch of really cool stuff, they make friends with a lot of vendors, you know, then as soon as they're either they're out of money, or they've, you know, they've gotten enough on the resume that said, look, at all this cool technology I've built and implemented, then they jump ship and leave the, the actual, you know, implementation and maintenance of it to their lackey. And that doesn't really do anyone any good other than the uh, vendors who are selling the technology. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you do see it all the time. It's like people focus on really cool tech, but they haven't got like the basic governance practices, change management. There's so many like fundamentals, which technology doesn't influence that you need to do. And everyone's like, yeah, I need to do all these monitoring controls. Yes, yes, you do. But at the same time, like the fundamentals of your change management procedures and all of the your basic governance controls, if they're not in place, tackling this stuff down here is kind of... <laughs> You're dealing with very, very low-level problems rather than the overarching issues. You bring up a good point there with um, you know defining the issues. Where I really don't care too much for the state of cyber education, you know, awareness and you know, pretty picture campaigns and that type of stuff. You know, it's a multi-billion-dollar-year industry. But really, what matters, I don't think a lot of companies are doing it, is taking the time to say, okay, this is what we have to do. Because it's very bespoke to the organization, and then educating those engineers, those you know managers, directors, and saying specifically, this is how you fit into this puzzle. This is my strategy. I need you to create you know, your own objectives to implement that strategy, and you know that becomes a little bit of a problem. You know where if you're a weak manager and you really don't want to force people to have to make decisions, you know you're going to reap what you sow, and so it really comes down to really good, solid leadership fundamentals of have a plan, you know, uh, you know, govern it, you know, hold people to the line. And if you've got someone who is, you know, long in the tooth, they're in that job, you know, but they're not producing results or, you know, they're afraid to make decisions, move them out, you know, find someone who's actually going to do it. I've seen that in organizations where it's just, you know, people are in positions too long and uh, it doesn't help the organization. Thanks. I mean, I guess so. I've got another question I'd like to talk to you about. It's kind of so, what are the big ticket items that you're working on? I know we discussed some of these a couple of days ago. What are like the big ticket items that the SCF and the Compliance Forge are working on in the next few months? One of the biggest drivers that we see, you know, that's really going to impact, you know, basically the, the global supply chain is going to be cybersecurity uh, supply chain risk management. And this is going to be driven uh, primarily off of NIST 161 Rev 1 that just came out. Because if you go back to President Biden a year ago with his executive orders for you know S bombs and you know supply chain security, 
all of that type of stuff is just now starting to bubble up. We're getting calls on about a weekly basis of like, hey, what do you have for 161? Because it's starting to now show up in contracts. So having the ability to evaluate yourself and then also your supply chain is really where we see the next decade uh, going. And that's where the SCF conformity assessment program is going to be huge on that. We're working with a couple of different uh, basically tool makers to help find ways to make it easy to perform assessments. But it's really one of those things where SCRM is going to touch everyone. So even if you don't feel that you're a U.S. government contractor or defense contractor, it's flowing down to subcontractors. You know, and again, that's the entire concept, supply chain you know, risk management. So it could be, you know, first, second, third, fourth, you know, fifth, all the way down. Companies have to be able to, you know, demonstrate, you know, how they're implementing security and privacy by design and, you know, supporting contractual obligations. So it's going to hit companies probably in the next five years or so. So we're really getting ahead of the wave just so we have tested, you know, really good, solid solutions that will meet those needs. And one of the other things we spoke about the other day was materiality and risk. And you said you've been doing some work on this. It'd be really interesting for our listeners to hear kind of what you've been doing on this side. Sure. And that's all part of the uh, SCF uh, conformity assessment program to help identify if you kind of look at your traditional, you know, low, medium, high risk, or give me a financial value. uh, That's hard to use when you actually look at a report. When you look at the people who are going to be looking to report, they really kind of want to know are you meeting some level of you know, risk tolerance? You know, essentially, does it conform? And so part of that goes to you know, what level of conformity does a company have? Do they have very low risk tolerance, such as a defense contractor, utilities, any, any organization in like, um, critical infrastructure is going to have a very low risk tolerance? You get to moderate risk tolerance, could be you know, retail space, some hospitals, you know, just your average company would be more moderate. And you can get into, you know, higher risk tolerance could be, you know, non-technical companies, you know, construction, you know, basic retail, you know, those type of things. So that level of risk, low, moderate, high risk tolerance affects what level of conformity you're willing to accept to a baseline set of controls. But the next part of that question is that, so if you don't conform, well, what's the answer? So it's not just conform or not conform. It's, you know, there's a significant deficiency. And again, we're, you know, piggybacking on terms that are already, you know, well used, but that really indicates a systemic, you know, weakness within, you know, it could be within a, a specific domain, maybe like asset control, or it could even be down to a like mismanagement or, you know, poor management, a, a systemic issue that's breaking your uh, like change management program. So that's keeping you from, you know, being able to demonstrate conformity. But then when you look at a program that's completely and utterly broken, that's when you know, there's material weakness where you could have, you will likely not be able to detect or respond to an incident you know, that, meets your, that meets your risk threshold. And so you're essentially, you're dumb and blind at that point. You don't have a security program if you have a material weakness. And one of the other things that's quite interesting there is like this concept of this blanket approach. I mean, you don't have to apply the same level of control everywhere. I mean, obviously you've got your top level controls, your governance controls, et cetera. But it's like, when you talk about secure by design, it's like, okay, well, what's applicable based on the risk or the context of the thing that we're trying to protect? Like so many time organizations get caught up on blanket approaches and we need to do everything everywhere. And it's just not realistic, is it? You can't just say, actually, we're going to implement these 400 controls everywhere all the time. It's about understanding your organization 
what's a priority and what's important and obviously applying control to that context. Again, the SRM has some, some kind of good concepts is, you know, they've got like three different tiers, like strategic, operational, and technical from a focus. So when you kind of look at it from like access control, if you've got where everyone in the organization has admin rights on their local box, that opens up so many, you know, different issues that, you know, you essentially don't have security. So that's more of a, a strategic issue, but it can also be down to a tactical issue too. If you have an application that's specific only to your team, you know, that you're managing that, you know, isn't part of a, a larger, you know, identity access management uh, solution. So this is where it kind of comes down to control applicability. You're going to have a lot of controls that are going to apply to the organization, you know, asset management, access control, you know, physical security. You have different, you know, controls that are going to be more operational. So at the, you know, department level, which could be, you know, access reviews, you know, from a manager or director who's actually going to be, you know, like, hey, I've got these 20 people on my team. Do all of them need access to a, a security enclave that's out there? All the way down to technical, which is really getting into the, you know, secure configurations, you know, your, your technologies that are, that are actually implementing the protections that you need. So it's understanding that cascading level of how everything, you know, fits. So if you focus on, you know, the, on the strategic side, you know, get your access control working, you get your, you know, asset management. Again, you start looking like zero trust. There's a lot of, you know, marketing stuff that's, that's out there of like, oh, we're going to go zero trust, we're going to do this. And it's like, okay, well, let's look at that. Do you have good access control? Well, not really. Okay, well, you fail right there. You know, what about, um, you know, asset management? Do you have robust, you know, accurate asset management? Well, no, I don't. Okay, you fail again right there. So there's a lot of different things that are these fundamental building blocks that you can't, you know, jump to this like really cool high level of technology if your fundamental IT hygiene practices are broken. And this goes back to that idea of identifying, you know, significant deficiencies, you know, which are your systemic problems, or, you know, you essentially have such a broken uh, program, you don't have any type of security at all. That's where this concept of uh, materiality comes into. Fantastic. And I guess one of the things that we're always hearing and that we're always interested in is like, what are you seeing as like the biggest area of concern in the market at the moment? What are people coming to you and saying, we need to address this? A lot of it is just flat out situational awareness where you have stuff like SCRM or uh, cybersecurity maturity model certification or you know privacy where it's, I didn't know anything about this. You know, We've had this contract for two years and now I'm being told I've got to attest to this. So you're seeing, at least we're seeing it from companies are after the fact doing their due diligence. You know, so they've already you know been doing the contract. Then they realize they've got to actually do something, and they're jumping through hoops to try and figure out how they're supposed to do it. They didn't budget for it. They're not properly you know in the mindset, so they feel like they're getting screwed. But really, they just didn't do their homework you know prior to it. And so that's kind of more of a gets into the broader education of you know at an industry level. Like, how do you know, you know, what you're supposed to be doing based on your industry? And it's interesting. I see so many people talking about, oh, we can be compliant against these things in two weeks. Like the amount of people out there, like promising like the world to these people. And it's like, I don't think there's a silver bullet for this, as you said. It's a top-down approach. It's a big shift in what you need to do. And yep. you need buy-in and strategic buy-in in a program to kind of embed and make one of these programs work. Otherwise, it's just, well, they're not going to get anywhere with it. Honestly, I feel a lot of those organizations that are saying, you know, we can do it in three days, we can do it in two weeks. 
when you start looking at, you know, highly complex things like CMMC, you know, you know, SOC, you know, two type, you know, prep or ISO, even GDPR, I really feel that they're being so disingenuous. It's really, you know, on the, the border of fraud. Uh, either they're so incompetent and their heads are so firmly, you know, up their own behinds that they don't understand the material themselves. Or I don't know if it's VC money telling them they better, they're not going to get another dime until they, you know, they pump up sales. But you look at anyone from a reasonable perspective and, you know, it might take, depending where they're starting, it could take months, it could take years to get to the point where they can legitimately say, you know, you are compliant with this. You might not even be secure, but you're at least compliant. Everyone wants that silver bullet, you know, like the um, weight loss pill, it's going to you know make them a movie star. It doesn't exist. I mean, even compliance forge products and the SCF, you know, we view it like these are tools that help enable you to move faster, but you still have to have to actually you know, do the work. And, you know, we see it all the time where there's, there's people saying like, we can do everything for you in a couple of days, or a couple of weeks. And I honestly don't know if they firmly believe that or if they're just, you know, pathological liars. But from what we've seen from people who have, uh, you know, been involved with those companies, it generally turns out to be, you know, they're being sold a bill of goods. They don't get compliant, you know, or there's some type of caveat of like, you know, we'll do this, you do the rest of it. So we'll do our portion in a couple of days, uh, but you still have to do all the other work. So it's bad marketing. It kind of pisses me off. Yeah, we see it all the time and it's just not believable, is it? It's also unfair, like, because I mean, some of these companies might not know, look, naive if they are to that point, but it's like, look, it is an overnight change. It's a long-term change to the organization. You really need to spend a lot of time thinking about this. And to you say, like, setting up a solid security compliance program is not an overnight activity. Just even getting the roles, responsibilities, the the governance in place just takes weeks and getting organizations to buy into that on top of them yep. implementing all of the specific requirements, which again, depending on where you sit in some of those things, is a hell of a lot of things. Yeah. And the caveat, is it theoretically possible? You know, yes. If you had a, a couple person organization that you could, you know, completely go to the cloud, you know, cloud native, you could implement a lot of controls really, really, really quickly. But that's not realistic for the average, you know, uh, organization that's been around for a while. You know, they have maybe on-premise or you know hybrid approaches. A lot of technology debt. Once you throw technology debt into the equation, you're talking compensated controls. You're talking change management, budget cycles. I mean, I've worked for companies that you know, yeah, flat out, it's like, nope, you're not getting any money for another year. You know, ask for it in a year. Maybe we'll prioritize it. So right there. A lot of companies, yeah, you can't get compliant because there you simply don't have the budget to implement new technologies or hire people or say make a code change to a buggy app, you know, to become compliant. So that's where I really look at a lot of those claims as just being just hogwash. So can you talk me through what you think a good information security or cyber security professional, uh, what attributes you think they should have? Uh, yeah, it's a good one. I don't think there's like a, a perfect model. I think some of the worst ones I've seen have, I'll, I'll start off on, on that side. They're getting into it because of the money. You know, someone told them it's a good career move. You know, they go get a degree. Maybe they were help desk before, or they have no background whatsoever in, in technology. And they want to jump right into, uh, you know, now I'm a you know, security person. Those people I, I find tend to not have the right mindset for it. You know, not really creative thinking or thinking it from the perspective of you know security in general. Some of the best ones I've found have been uh, ex-military. 
And I don't know if that's just because it's dysfunctional mindset, you know, it's like, I'm ex-military, so I can make fun of it. But it's a little bit of, uh, you know, anti-authoritarian, you know, mindset, but also of how would I break this? And if you look at it from a hacker's perspective of like, I would attack this and break it these different ways, or I understand that, you know, that this one person is going to be a, a weakness. And this is how that person, either through apathy or ignorance or just, you know, flat out, you know, stupidity will break this process. And then that way you can implement the controls to prevent those type of uh, issues. So I think someone that comes at, at security, the, the profession from that mindset of an attacker, keep it from the attacker mindset. And that's in governance, risk and compliance. That's an audit. That's in all of these. So the people who are kind of coming out from a technology background or from a opposing force mindset, I think tend to be some of the most effective and uh, you know best people within cyber right now. Now, kind of caveat on that one too, I'm gonna make fun of privacy. Um, <laughs> so, hey, you invited me, I'm on. Yeah, no, it's fine, uh, I'm enjoying it, it's great. <laughs> so one of the things I dislike on privacy is that privacy for the most part has been um, adopted by uh, the legal profession. So you're gonna a lot of legal you know, minds, you know, from either lawyers to you know, anyone within the legal industry trying to make a buck on privacy. And debating stuff ad nauseum. And I think that's one of the biggest issues on privacy is that it's not a topic to be debated and debated and debated just for the sense of, you know, listen to yourself speak. What are you actually doing to provide a solution, you know, to fix it? And I don't see a lot of that on the privacy side. You know, there's a lot of security people, you know, who are getting into privacy and they're kind of looking at more from a pragmatic approach. But yeah, that's where it's interesting. A little bit of a kind of a, you know, battle between cybersecurity professionals and privacy professionals for the heart and soul of privacy. And as I joke, you can have cybersecurity without privacy, but you can't have privacy without cybersecurity. And a lot of people in privacy kind of uh, seem to miss that fundamental truth. So if they're trying to build a privacy program and they know absolutely nothing about cybersecurity other than what they've watched on a couple of webinars, they're part of the problem. I mean, there's lots of very legal requirements, right? When you read them and then you're like, okay, yeah, but practically how do I embed this into my organization? And what does this practically mean for, in most cases, your IT function? <laughs> because they're the ones holding the data and what do we do with it? Yep. They're very different worlds because you, you read the requirements and unless you're a lawyer or you understand that world, like you have to distill it into meaningful things. And I think that's why a lot of people get unstuck with the privacy requirements because they look at them and go, I kind of think this is right <laughs> rather than this yeah. is what really should be doing. It's a good point too. And one thing we found on the privacy side is, is a lot of it is very procedural, you know, like how are you going to actually do, do a DPIA or how are you actually going to do data flow mapping? So like a good example is, you know, GRC solutions are great to be able to assign controls. Like I am going to assign, you know, Joe Smith, the responsibility to do an annual you know, like data flow diagram. But most GRC solutions can't actually, they don't have the, in, the organic functionality to perform data flow mapping within the tool. So now that person has to go find another tool, you know, do the data flow mapping, you know, then provide that you know, attestation evidence you know, through another tool, such as the GRC. So a GRC can provide the overall governance of it, which is fantastic. But that's where there's, you know, there's a little bit of a disconnect. Some people feel that there should be one tool to rule them all. And really, there isn't. It's you're going to find best-in-class tools to do certain things. And privacy is, you know, there's a couple players, and they're all trying to buy each other out. 
and you know, make the best tools. And that's kind of where there's a little bit of, it's an automation issue at this point on privacy more than it is on policies or standards. I completely agree. And then it's one of those things where you've got so many people who like, have struggled with it. And then in the US even more so, because you've got state, well, lots of state regulations, which are for, I guess, some of the companies that we've spoken to gambling with now different states, different sure. privacy laws, even with where they gamble and then they have to apply different laws. It, it's so complicated and you can see why like so many organizations are struggling with it. And you bring up a good aspect of like on, on gambling, you know, when you start looking at physical security controls, cameras, you know, uh, facial you know, detection, you know, that takes on a whole new realm that now you start having the lawyers and privacy professionals get into the physical security space and cybersecurity space. So if they start, you know, dictating these requirements without understanding how that affects the business, really, it's, it's a big turnoff. This is where it goes back to that, again, make the big pot of coffee, you know, understand your must-haves, your nice-to-haves, and come up with that multi-year, you know, roadmap approach. Because, you know, realistically, you look at different law enforcement agencies out there, you know, for these different privacy laws, most of them aren't doing a thing. I remember in Oregon back in 2000, I think it was eight or nine, you had the Oregon Identity Theft Protection Act you know, came out back in 2009. And I was in this conference in Portland where several state employees started off their presentation to this room full of lawyers and cybersecurity professionals. And it was like, okay, well, we're really not going to actually you know, fine anyone. We're just going to tell people that it's, uh, we'll tell you what you need to fix. You could hear this couple hundred people just, oh, like, okay, we're, we're, we can tune out now. You just told us you're not going to actually punish us, so we don't care. And, you know, from there, it never recovered. I don't think most people in Oregon don't even know that there's an Identity Theft Protection Act. Going to have teeth, hasn't it? Otherwise, people are going to just go, okay, well, look, we'll be fine, but we'll accept the fine is just easier than doing than actually trying to comply with it. Oh, correct. And, and this is where we start looking at the, back in, I think it was November, you had the U.S. Department of Justice created some new initiative to help punish for False Claims Act violations. And so that was really you know, interesting where especially people thought at the time that maybe that's when the U.S. Department of Defense was going to use that as a way to help enforce CMMC compliance. And there's a case just a couple of weeks ago that they came to a settlement where you know, no big fines, no one's going to jail. Again, that kind of collective sigh within the defense industrial base of like, <laughs> Okay, cool. You know, no one's going to go to jail. You know, False Claims Act violations are just, you know, it's the boogeyman. And I don't want to see anyone go to jail. But at the same time, you know, collectively, the U.S. government just lost this big stick. There is no carrot. So they had a stick that was a False Claims Act and they just, you know, dropped it. And, you know, so other than like on something like, you know, contracting where you may be able to pull a contract, if the contract is important enough and you're the sole supplier for you know the military of a certain widget, everyone knows the Department of Defense is going to give a waiver. They're going to be like, yeah, well, do better next time. But, you know, it's like, <laughs> well, yeah, it's a bit of a joke. So until they get teeth, uh, there's really, it's not going to improve that much, especially on the privacy side. You know, a lot of that type of stuff is who's really going to be enforcing it. Maybe whistleblowers might, you know, give, you know, bad publicity, but I just don't see that being that, that important right now. Yeah, I mean, there's kind of these accountability regulations. I don't know if you've come across SMCR, like it's a one in the UK, but that's one where, like, for financial services, like they're now like senior people and decision makers are liable for their decisions, and they're yeah. now being tested, they're fit and proper. Often, you see these regulations happen, and then they kind of 
move out into financially significant other companies. So, I mean, I would probably wager that that will start to happen. But again, that's probably more at a corporate governance level. But ultimately, like you need to have teeth and people need to be accountable for decisions. And if you're not going to do that, then people are not going to comply or they'll do the bare minimum. Correct. And same within the U.S. where they have the SEC has, you know, uh, draft guidance on, you know, more cybersecurity experience within the board. But yeah, until board members actually have personal liability, where if they make a really bad decision for accepting the risk and they're hoping that cyber insurance is going to pick it, things aren't going to change. So that actually brings up an interesting point, though, is that on cyber insurance, and I kind of completely forgot this one. One, it's a lot harder for companies to get cyber insurance right now because they're hemorrhaging money the uh, insurance providers. And uh, we have been you know, approached by you know, a big player within the, uh, the insurance space to help define a cybersecurity control set. You know, something that if you've ever looked at a different you know, policy or the, the questionnaire that cyber insurance providers are, are you know, asking, it's the Wild West. You know, a lot of, of them, they're, they're like, yeah. oh, you got the FA across everything. Well, well no, like the very like, blanket answers. I've seen them and looked at it and gone, I'm not sure this is helping you or you understand the questions that you, <laughs> that you should well, be asking here. It's twofold. I mean, you know, one, if you say, you don't know, you know, then if they don't know what you're talking about, you maybe you get dropped. But if you do say yes and you can't prove that you've actually done it, then that's a get out of jail free card for, yeah. you know, they're going to keep on file and say, hey, you lied to us. We're not going to pay. So this is where we're kind of hoping to help the insurance industry by, because if you, basically just give a yes or no answer. Same thing with third-party risk. People are going to lie or they're going to be like, well, I think we're doing it or, you know, we're kind of doing it, but we're not doing it across the entire organization. This is where the uh, the cybersecurity and privacy capability maturity model really is going to be really cool is that being able to ask those questions, you know, how well are you doing this, but based on maturity level, you know, so it's not just yes or no, but it's like, you know, we're doing it limited or enterprise wide or, you know, all the way up to, yes, we've got like machine learning, AI you know, driven processes. So that actually should really help normalize questionnaires that are, it might take a couple of years, but we really feel that the SCF is going to have a, a big play in cybersecurity insurance questionnaires. I've heard recently people on their renewals being quoted like, absolutely outrageous sums of money people talking about it i think yep. it's all because like obviously the insurance firms didn't probably understand what they were asking people have been hit they've paid out a lot and it's gone completely the other way now which is like it's over expensive and people are scared of not being honest and then like you say these these very black and white answers aren't really allowing the short insurers to understand what they need to know correct or even just the aspect of you know the mondelez case i think it was against zurich i, I can't quite remember but it was about the act. If so, if it was a state-sponsored hacker or possible state-sponsored hacker, you know, is that an act of war? And you know, so those are you know really big ticket discussions that really are going to affect cyber insurance as a whole. So uh, thank you, Tom. I really appreciate your time today. So I've got one final question. Um, sure. If we were to get another security leader or someone to interview, who would you find interesting to listen or us to talk to? Good question. I'd have to think about that and I can get back to you, but I mean, there are a lot of different people that are good out there, but it depends on the industry you want to specifically talk about, you know, especially on CMMC, someone like Ryan Bonner or Jacob Horn, you know, uh, great guests. So it really just comes down to the specific topic. So, I mean, thank you for spending time with us. Can you let our listeners know where they can hear from you? If you've got any email addresses or LinkedIn that you're happy for people to get in contact with you? 
Sure. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, just Tom Cornelius, you know, find under Compliance Forge or Secure Controls Framework. And you can just go to the websites. You can just contact uh, support or you can just email me at tcornelius at securecontrolsframework.com. Thank you, Tom. Really appreciate your time today. Cool. Have a good day.